0: The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches.
1: Hello and joining you on Valentine's Day from Berlin, where one of the city's newspapers this week celebrated the occasion by reporting that inhabitants of the German capital are twice as likely to cheat on their partner in this city as in Stuttgart, who said romance was dead. My name is Daniel Friber and I am the host of this episode of The Cycling Podcast in which we will strive to reward your fidelity as we describe how in Andalusia yesterday, a lot of faces were red, spirits were blue, mortals ate dust and pogachar flew. <laughs> oh, One good. of our guests today will hopefully help us to do that. From the self-proclaimed most photographed town in New England, a boast that merits further investigation given that Peacham has a population of just 665 and was also described by no less a publication than Yankee magazine as the best village in New England. The best village. He was a world tour pro for seven years, notably spending five years with Team Sky. Alas, in the last few hours, he has arguably lost his crown as the preeminent strawberry blonde climber in American road cycling history to Matteo Jorgensen but He retains his status as one of the leading exponents of the nascent cycling discipline known as gravel racing. He's a veteran of the cycling podcast. He's got his own podcast, Breakfast with Boz. So I don't know who's cheating on who today. He is Ian the Boz. And he's wearing some terrific headgear. Tell us about your headgear, Ian. Uh,
2: yes, well, thank you, Daniel. I am um, wearing a hat that I bought at, I believe it was tour of the Alps one year. We started in... Oh, you bought. In, I thought you'd won I, it. No, no, I didn't win anything at that race. Um, no, I think it was like a snowy day before tour of the Alps one year. And I walked to a shop and picked it up for 20 euros, 100% wool made in Austria for 20 euros. So yeah, that is my hat. And um, our town of Peachum, it is a small village. And I think 650 people is a summertime population. It probably drops to about 350 in, in the wintertime. So we're pretty isolated out here this time of year.
1: And is it, do you believe that boasts that it's the most photographed town in New England? Let's start. How big is New England? Remind us. What does New England encompass?
2: Ooh, that depends on who you ask. So okay. it'd be Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, uh, New York, and some people would I- include or exclude Connecticut. Um, so kind of the, the upper eastern it's a, seaboard. It's a big area. And it why is. Well, is
1: it so readily photographed?
2: Uh, We have a a church that is in town that has a steeple and kind of behind that is the White Mountains and you can see Mount Washington and it is a pretty... Uh, iconic and and beautiful setting to take a, you know, people stand up on this field and take a picture of the church with the Mount Washington in the background, which last week recorded the lowest ever temperature in North America at the top of Mount Washington, minus 104 degrees wow. Fahrenheit with wind also,
1: chill. Also, doesn't it, it's it's very famous for its wind speeds up there, isn't it? Isn't it always the, the highest ever wind speed in the States? I think it was recorded up there. Is that right?
2: It is. Yeah. I think, uh, I think it's highest ever wind speed recorded on on earth, which is crazy because it's only at 4,000 feet. You know, it's less than less than 2,000 meters, so it's not even that high. But for whatever reason, it gets this uh, weird weather pattern. Ian, let's introduce our second guest.
1: Also joining us today is a man whose namesake, Lionel Richie, performed a song, Endless Love, that Billboard recently anointed the most romantic of all time. In the song, a duet, Richie serenades Diana Ross with the words, My first love, your every breath that I take, your every step I make. Whereas our Lionel once refused point blank to sing a few words of happy birthday on the podcast due to potential copyright issues. He may be more pullover than Casanova, but he has an <laughs> adoring following among the Cycling Podcast listeners. Nonetheless, here's Lionel burney Wow, Bernie. thank you. Lionel, happy Valentine's oh, Day. Oh, thank
3: you, Daniel. It's great to have been reunited for a couple of weeks prior to the, the big one, Valentine's Day episode. Um, <laughs> did you mention that people in Stuttgart are more or less faithful than people in Berlin?
1: They are much more um, faithful. Do
3: you know the cycling link between Stuttgart? Uh, well, between cycling and Stuttgart, you'll you know this. Um, won't I you?
1: know that I know that Jani Bunió won the world there, and Bunió. It's Jani Bunyo's birthday today, and there's also an infidelity story aside that I could tell about Jani <laughs> Bunió. <Buigneau>. Um, <laughs> I'd, I'd actually prepared this for the episode, although I didn't know that you were going to mention the Stuttgart link. Um, he he ended up marrying a podium girl that he met during the 1994 Giro d'Italia to the delight of the Italian press or Italian journalists, all except one, the Italian journalist who Bugno had been dating and who was recovering <laughs> in hospital from a horse-riding accident um, when Bugno... <laughs> He, well, he he offered his new squeeze, a ride back to his team hotel in a Palti team car. Um, The next day, this was on the Giro d'Italia, his team manager Gianluigi Stanga he snapped back at the claim that the girl had spent the night in Buño's room. He said they were only together for two hours, and Gianni asked for permission.
3: Wow. I mean, this has veered more off course than Robert Miller at gouze in <laughs> <know>. the 1988 <laughs> Tour de France. So I was actually going to say, Daniel, that the the city of Stuttgart sponsored the cycling team, the German cycling team that came along in 1988, and they were called Team Stuttgart. Team Stuttgart, sorry, for three years, 1988 and 89 and 90. And that was the forerunner for the telecom team. Telecom, the telecommunication giant, came in after that to sponsor the team. Um, At that time, the late 80s, there wasn't even a German pro team. So it was um, a bit of a departure. And uh, I think Udo Boltz rode for Stuttgart right at the very beginning. They rode on Eddie Merck's bicycles. And of course, without that Stuttgart team, Daniel, there'd have been no Team Telecom, no T-Mobile, no Jan Ulrich, no Jan Ulrich book. I mean, just imagine, just see how important the city of Stuttgart is to cycling and to your your own career.
1: Lionel, I think we should move swiftly on because <laughs> I fear that if that wasn't already some piss taking, that some might be on the way. Um, Lionel, just before we get to the news roundup, um, we're going to talk... A lot of races in the news roundup last week. I wondered aloud whether we had any listeners who claimed to or tried to watch every bike race there is to watch. For example, on GCN, um, I was contacted by Killian Kelly, who a lot of listeners might be familiar with from Twitter. He works for GCN, and he said that. If one were to watch, I think this is based on last year, if one had watched every bit of live racing there was on GCN last year, that would have meant four hours or just over four hours per day every day of the year. So if someone wants to ruin their life, it seems like quite a good way to do it. I don't know if you guys, (laughs) if you guys seen the film Another Round, the Mads Mikkelsen film, in which... Four teachers, four male teachers get together and they unearth this uh, study, a scientific study by some rogue researcher who has discovered or is suggesting that human beings function at their best when they have a certain amount of alcohol in their bloodstream. And these guys set off, embark on an experiment on a sort of hedonistic, self-destructive crusade Um, to live their lives always basically half cut and we see their lives completely unravel it strikes me that as an alternative to that an analogous experiment would be try to watch four hours 10 minutes of cycling every day and see how see whether you see whether your your marriage will endure that test for example lionel should we get onto the news roundup? You were about to say something. No, there.
3: I was just going to say. I mean, some couples may very well both share the love and passion for cycling, That's and true. would want to sit down on Valentine's Day evening and watch four hours of cycling. But I can imagine for some other couples, perhaps my, my own relationship included, that might not go down so well. This sport on the TV is uh, is is a pursuit that I have to follow alone most of the
1: time. Chaps, on with the news roundup. It was the European Track Championships of the weekend. In fact, we came almost live from my spiritual hell, I mean home, the Grenken Velodrome last week when Renard Schotter was there. Quick rundown on some of the more significant performances focusing on the endurance events on the men's side. Italy beat Great Britain in the team pursuit. Uh, bon jammer. Thomas won the Omnium, Roger Kluger and Theo Reinhardt, the Madison, Jonathan Milan, the individual pursuit, Oliver Wood, the scratch race, Simone Consonni, the points race, and Tim Torn Teutenberg, the elimination race. For The women, GB won the team pursuit, one of their members, Katie Archibald, took the Omnium and the Madison, Franziska Brauser, the individual pursuit, Anita Stenberg, the points race. Um, Maria Martins, the scratch race, and Lotta Kopecki, the elimination race. Staying with the women, we had the inaugural UAE Women's Tour at the weekend, or the end of it, with Elisa Longobodghini taking the overall and one stage. The other stages went to Lorena Wiebes and Charlotte Kuhl, cool, who took two stages, in fact. Cool and the gang, or at least the Women's World Tour, will resume with Het Newsblad in a couple of weeks. Also getting down on it in the Middle East. Lionel, you Lionel, you, you, you're cringing you smiling. smiling. Just smiling. Um, <laughs> also getting down on it in the Middle East. Some of the top male riders in the world at the moment. Um, I mentioned Matteo Jorgensen winning in Oman. Well, there'll be more talk about this race later in the episode. For now, we'll just tell you that at the time of recording, we've seen four stages and victories for Tim Malia, Jesus Herrada, Jorgensen, and Diego Ulisi in the GC. Jorgensen leads by five seconds from Ulisi with one stage to go. There were also a few one-day races at the weekend. Vuelta Murcia, which may be more than for its outcome, got plenty of attention on social media for a collision between Juan uh, Barguil and Jose Joaquin Rojas. Rojas shouting at Barguil that he was subnormal, subnormal. Did you see that, chaps? um sort of subnormal would be kind of retarded um not a very politically politically correct insult at all and there was a lot of teeth gnashing about this on social media um did you see the incident either of you chaps there were a couple of amateur videos of it
2: i did not but um i will say having had raced against rojas a fair bit i'm not surprised (laughs) and maybe maybe with yeah
1: yeah, there seems to be a bit of a prevailing opinion about Rojas, unfortunately.
2: Well, and there's no more Valverde in the team as well. So he's maybe trying to, uh, you know, flex his elbows a little bit, make some space. Because when, when he was with Valverde, you know, he always had maybe more of a reason to reason to do it. But with Valverde gone, who knows who he's fighting for?
1: If there is any mitigation, I don't really think there is, but we should just point out that the Vuelta Murcia is Rojas's home race. Um, it might well be the last opportunity that he gets to do that race, win that race. He was in pretty good pretty good shape at the time, um, but still. The, to me, it didn't look as though Balgil had done anything particularly wrong um, as they came very fast around the right-hand bend, and well, there was a touch of wheels, and they both went... <laughs> Um, sprawling to the tarmac. The race was won on a very narrow well it looked to me quite dangerous running generally by Ben Turner of Ineos Grenadiers, his first pro victory. A bit further around the coast the following day, the Clásica de Almería took place, the race of the pre-confection supermarket Tomatoes as it's known locally on account of its Backdrop among the greenhouses that make up the infamous Mar de Plástico, the plastic sea in that region. The winner there was Matteo Moschetti of Doug Ryder's new Q36.5 team. Lionel, you did a special on this team recently. Is that how we should pronounce we should be calling them q36.5 indeed yeah
3: q36.5 and uh well it's a uh, it's basically the your body temperature isn't it for for, for peak performance yes. and it's a uh, it's a clothing brand and i mean they've got some fairly impressive sponsors that i didn't know about at the time that i interviewed doug because i think they were a little bit under wraps but uh breitling and ubs as some you know fairly blue chip type companies sponsoring the team i think he's quite confident that this is a term journey uh, for Q36.5. We talked in the episode about the difficulty of putting together a roster of riders who would be able to, you know, gather some results in year one because they put the team together in a very short space of time, really only sort of three, four months uh, at the end of last year. And Moschetti really fits that mold of a kind of a a money ball signing. You know, a, a decent sprinter at Trek Segafredo for a number of years, but In a team like Q36.5, he's got a bit more room to spread his wings and a really important win for them to get off the mark fairly early. Of course, not in the World Tour, so they are relying on uh, getting some results in smaller races and hoping to catch the eye of bigger race organisers. And yeah, they're off to a good start.
2: It's just dawned on me, Um, maybe the downfall of the team I raced with last in the world tour, Katusha Alpeson, and Katusha had started their own clothing line. And on our kit, it said 37.5, which was, I guess maybe a couple of years ago, was the optimal temperature. So maybe that's why the team had its demise is we were riding at <laughs> yeah, one degree too warm. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> Both grey jerseys as well. It's quite. I quite like this um, Q36.5 jersey, but I must admit from the helicopter shots of Almeria, it did strike me that it's quite a difficult one to spot. I think, yeah, they, they blend
3: in with the road. It's going to help them escape in breakaways. No one's going to see them go. Uh, very smart move.
1: Moving even further around the Iberian Peninsula into Portugal, as a bit of a leg loosener for the Volta Algarve, we had the first edition of the Figuera Champions Classic that was won by Caspar Pedersen of Sudal Quick Step. I mentioned the Mar de Plástico, the sea of plastic at the Classic Almería. Well, we had another race in the Mar de Olivos, the sea of olive trees, this time the Classica uh, Jaén Paraíso Interior. That was pogsinerated by a certain Slovenian, but we'll hear. It. A lot more about that in due course. There's been a bit of talk already, chaps, about Remco, Avonapol and Tade Pogacar and how they'll measure up this year. I can tell you that Remco, Avonapol has given a long interview to Le Keep magazine in which the world champions succumb to what will henceforth be known as the Cycling Podcast Syndrome i.e. a rare pathology whereby someone who's supposed to be talking about cycling opens their mouth and enunciates words about another sport, i.e. football. In the interview, among other things, the reigning world champion credited his teenage years as a footballer with the upper body stability that helps to make him such an effective time trialist. He also chose Tadej Pogacar as his centre-forward for a pro peloton fantasy football team, despite, in his words, not knowing if Tadej is any good or not. Last bit of news, guys. We've had quite a bit of retirement chat in the last few weeks. And in recent days, another rider has announced that he will quit at the end of the year. We're talking about Rowan Dennis, the two-time world time trial champion, winner of stages in all three Grand Tours, and also aware of the leader's jersey in all three Grand Tours. Now, Ian Lionel, he Rowan Dennis is 32. In the last few weeks, we've had Thibaut Pinot announcing that he's going to quit at the end of the season also age 32 Peter Sagan's only just turned 33 he's also kind of quitting at the end of the year is this an early sign of what we've heard for a couple of years is going to happen that parallel to this trend of um, precocious young 20, 21, 22 year olds thriving very early in their pro career we're going to have riders effectively burning out for want of a better word or deciding that they've had enough of professional cycling maybe in the case of these three i mean they've also had very lucrative careers um three big riders who've won a lot and maybe they feel like they don't need to carry on much beyond their 32nd 33rd birthday what do you think
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it really is a case of, you know, the sport. And, you know, as we, we saw with Pino, you know, the sport has evolved and changed a lot from when these riders first joined the Peloton. There's a lot more required of them. And when you look at these riders in particular, you know, Sagan, Pino, you know, Rowan, they're also riders that have, you know, or have been able to have somewhat of a balance to their life. And as the sport continues to become more professional, as riders spend more time at altitude, more time away from their families, I think that's only going to become more common where athletes are not having these careers where they're racing into their late thirties. And for these riders as well, it's like, what are they, you know, what is driving them to continue racing? You know, they, they know the level that the sport is at now. And if they're not going to be competitive, if not going to be winning, then why would they choose to continue to make those sacrifices, you know, to have good results, but maybe not the same results that they have had in the past. You know, is Rowan really going to win another time trial world championships possibly but a lot of work goes into that and a lot of sacrifice for for accomplishing a result that maybe isn't as good as what he's had in the past
1: one thing that strikes me Ian, is that we've talked a lot in the last couple of years about data and how it informs talent identification it also helps younger riders to be competitive earlier but i would also suggest that it allows riders to Rest in a more sort of informed way, and to recharge in a more informed way, and that that information might counteract something like burnout or, or riders getting sort of mentally fatigued. It feels like it should do that. You know, the more judicious sort of rationing of efforts and rationing also of people's time as well. That you mentioned the time they they spend at altitude. It feels as though you know there should be the tools in place to help longevity and to promote longevity.
2: I mean, I would agree with that. You know, we do have the ability now to measure, you know, sleep and kind of off-bike recovery. However, I think there's a whole psychological aspect that is not measurable. And, you know, maybe for these older riders, you know, not older, but riders in their mid-30s, they're break, their off time was, you know, going on a weekend vacation, you know, drinking some wine, having nice meals, mm-hmm. which was psychologically recovering, maybe not as physically recovering as a younger rider who they see recovery as, I'm going to sit in my apartment for four days and, you know, binge on Netflix and, you know, eat super clean and recover and drink green juices. Um, you know, the, the older generation, they... Th- viewed and I guess I was the same is you know, my recovery blocks were oftentimes kind of vacation blocks where I could switch off Mm -hmm. all the all the dials and really relax and unwind, which probably isn't the best pure recovery. I think psychologically it is, but now if teams are measuring that, um Maybe they're saying, hey, you're, you're not actually fully recovered as, as well as you could have had you, you know, done X, Y and Z.
3: And the other dimension is that if riders have families as well and suddenly children are around, it's much less appealing to have to go and live on Mount Tidy for a month, you know, to get ready for a grand tour or, or whatever and, and make those sacrifices. I mean, already there's just a racing and training program um, it requires a lot of uh, riders you know a lot of sacrifice when it comes to family time and yeah like you say and if if that also extends to eats into all of the the rest of the the family time shortens the off season, changes um what riders can do it's a it's a long time 12 13 years as a professional i think um rowan dennis will have done that's uh, that's about average isn't it and i it does make me wonder some of the 18 19 year olds who are coming in you know 12 years is going to take them to 30 are we going to see riders retiring you know around about the 30 year mark um you know the, the next generation we'll have to wait and see
1: well we'll hear someone else making the same prediction later on in the episode but chaps that concludes the news roundup
0: The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibraSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Thank you very much
3: to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors. You can find out all about Super Sapiens continuous glucose monitoring system at supersapiens.com. It's used by the Yumbo Visma team and Canyon SRAM. Their athletes use Super Sapiens to help them monitor their blood glucose levels in real time and see the impact that their training, their nutrition choices and their rest regime has on their blood glucose levels and so tweak their behavior, their training, their diet in order to optimize their performance. Super Sapiens was founded by Phil Sutherland who was a very good rider in his own right but also a Type 1 Diabetic, been living with diabetes since he was a child and he recognized that there was a real crossover and that non-diabetics could benefit from being able to monitor their blood glucose levels in real time as well now the technology is very similar it's not identical to the glucose monitoring systems that diabetics use but the abbott libra sense glucose sport biosensor is the world's first continuous glucose monitoring system designed specifically for sport lots of athletes have been using super sapiens over the past few years and in a recent survey super sapiens found that more than 50 percent of users had changed their in-workout fueling regime as a result of the data that they could see on the app 70 percent of users have found that they've changed their overall diet and 60% of users have found a reduction in the number of times they've bonked or hit the wall or noticed a sudden loss of energy during exercise. If you think that Super Sapiens can help you reach your goals in 2023, go to supersapiens.com. wouldn't be more
0: happy to start a season like this and, uh, yeah, uh, uh it makes me really happy. The team worked so so well today. It was uh, like a fairy tale, and uh, to finish it off with uh, first and third place, it's uh, it's amazing. This race is the
2: second uh, today. is the second year we had to uh, yeah. this classic. But it's very similar or not with the Bianche? You win Strade last year. You won. Uh, tell me about. Is very differ- different or not? Because you win
0: at the same way. Yeah, it's. Uh, it's a bit different, I think, uh, yeah, uh, I, would, uh, I would not compare them uh, as, as the similar races, yeah, they both have gravel, but the gravel is completely different on the on the both races, and different climbing, different uh, different entrances to the, the gravel sections, so yeah, it's a, it's a whole lot different experience today. No, it was a plan to attack there, and uh, yeah, uh, the team put us in uh, perfect position, and Tim Valence uh, did a really, really big job uh, coming into the gravel section, and then here she just finished it off on the climb, and uh, yeah, it was just a uh, matter of the legs for the last two minutes of the climb, and uh, yeah, it was uh, just as you planned, so it was uh, perfect. Well, chaps, that was Tade Pogacar after
1: his first race of the season, his first race win of the season. It was yesterday. It was down in Andalucía in southern Spain at the uh, Clásica Jallén Paraíso Interior. This sort of hybrid road gravel race. We'll come on to that in a minute, whether it's road or gravel. Spectacular attack from Pogacar, about 40 or 42 kilometers from the finish convincing emphatic victory despite a puncture and do you know what chaps when I was reflecting on this race yesterday or as I was watching the race it, this thought came to me spontaneously I'm gonna make a big claim um, to start part two of the episode today I've been following professional cycling for 25 years now more or less and today Pogacar is hands down the best and most spectacular bike rider I've ever seen in action
2: I might agree with that. Um, (laughs) As I knew I was coming on the podcast yesterday, I decided I should actually watch a bike race. And it's it's phenomenal that this is his first race of the year. You know, it's, you know, not a bit. It was a race on a Monday, which isn't, you know, definitely is not getting the same attention. It's not the same prestige. And the fact that he chose to race in kind of his, his, the fashion that he races and go from 40 odd kilometers to go, there's no reason for him to need to do that, to have to do that. But that he really can't hold himself back. I mean, it's it's phenomenal that he races like this from the get go. You know, the beginning of the season. You know, someone who's you know definitely going for the Tour de France this year. He's got other big goals, but that you know he's always he's always racing at a hundred percent. It's really phenomenal to watch someone race with so much. Passion, because I mean, everyone knew he was the strongest rider in the race, just based off of his palmares. But for him to actually come out and and perform like that from the get go, it really, I mean, it's it's made bike racing so much fun. Although it did get a bit boring the last you know 15k when you knew he was just going to ride away. um But I mean, f- what a phenomenal athlete. And I'm going to ask you about the. I'm
1: going to ask you for some geological analysis in a minute about the texture of the gravel, the type of the gravel, um and so on and so forth. Because I heard you talking about this on our. Um, other podcast service course with Lizzie Banks and Tom Wally recently but Lionel what's your what's your initial reaction to me making that outlandish claim I mean would you you've been watching cycling a little bit longer than me a few decades more (laughs) than I have um (laughs) would you concur however that Tadej Pogacar stands alone I mean, I can see why you would say that. I, I
3: suppose I, it, yesterday's race took me back to Strada Bianca last year. I mean, it was so similar, uh, not just because uh, the, the course is similar, the the scenery is similar, the gravel, well, we'll come on to whether the gravel is similar, but it looks, looks it.
1: Can I, I'll just stop you there before we go on, just about the similarities, because we heard... Pogacar say there that they're different, they're quite different races. Statistically, they're not that different in the sense that high yesterday, 180 kilometers more or less, Strade Bianche, same distance. Elevation gain, yesterday, 2,970 meters, Strade Bianca last year is 3,562, so a little bit more in Italy. And more or less the same distance on gravel. Fifty five kilometres yesterday, sixty three kilometers in Strade Bianca last year. Sorry, Line gone. But
3: the 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 field at Strada Bianca was obviously a lot deeper. Um but, yes. I mean at the the sharp end of the race you know that wasn't a that wasn't a soft group was it that he was um, that he was in and then rode away from uh, at strada bianca last year there was almost a sort of deflating feeling of oh if he's this good the first weekend of march how good is he going to be at the tour de france and of course he was very good at the tour de france but didn't win the race he was he was beaten and a lot of the talk over the winter uh, has been about how the tour de france is everything for tade pogacar this season you know the the mixing up of his race program so not going to the UAE doing this this little race it's only the second edition of this race uh, in southern Spain uh, is so we gather to keep everything fresh so that you know he doesn't settle into any kind of funk I mean his race program the little we know about it leading up to the Tour de France Well, we know he's going to do more of the um, more of the classics Uh, but he's also going to do Paris-Nice this year instead of Turreno-Adriatico apparently going to go straight from Strada Bianca to Paris-Nice Uh, He's going to do the kind of the reverse Jacques Oncatil, isn't he? Oncatil famously Mm. in 1965 won the Dauphiné, finished in the Alps. Uh, flew, I think, from Nîmes Airport to Bordeaux, and then at one o'clock in the morning started the now-defunct Bordeaux-Paris one-day race, a 550-kilometre race that they start behind Derny motorbikes, and he won that as well. Um, It would be quite something if Pogacar won Strada Bianca again and then got himself up to, well, the outskirts of Paris and then uh, won Paris-Nice as well. So clearly, uh, the Tour de France is the most important thing in his season but as Ian said you know these the top riders and this is something that is new and something that certainly wasn't the case 20 years ago the top riders turn up and they race not just fit to race but they actually take the races on There was really no reason other than um than, than that is just how he's built he he got into the um into the group and saw the opportunity took the opportunity no thought of having an easy day i think the 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 riders you know they do their training in training and they do their racing in racing the kind of preparation race um theory seems to have died out almost and uh i i think it's good because it it made the race um you know it certainly made me think well sitting down to see what does Pogachar do and well he did what he did at Strada Bianca last year he rode away from everybody and he made it look you know i mean he he certainly looks the you know the real deal on the bike there's just something you know poetic about the way he rides and just the calmness I know it's not the Tour de France on the line, but when he had that puncture yes he had a minute and thirty five minute and forty seconds in hand, but the puncture was quite close to the finish. But, you know, he got off his bike almost balletic style, didn't he? Lent it against a post that just happened to be there. Took a new bike, off he went. No fuss, no drama. There's just a sort of almost poetry emotion, uh, you know, quality to Pogacar when he's riding like that.
1: I mean... You mentioned the the, well, the sort of beauty, the aesthetic, um, well, the splendor of Tade Pogaccio in full flight. I mean, I would suggest as well, chaps, that it's a, it is a beautiful race, a real treat for the eyes, the uh, clássica um, Paraíso interior. I mean, last year, I think most people looked upon it as a bit of a novelty, but to me, I mean, I mentioned the stats there, similarity, at least on paper with Estrada y Bianca, I would say it's definitely a race that has a lot of Potential and it's obviously got a sort of lick of prestige with Tadej Pogacar winning the second edition there. But in um, just as a gravel race, um, I think we heard Pogaccio as well talk about the difference between the gravel in Hayen versus Stendal Bianche. As a connoisseur of these things, um, what did you make of the gravel itself? And you know, a lot of us who don't really follow gravel racing seriously, assiduously, um, we probably don't appreciate the difference between Estrada Bianca and Paraiso Interior and the kind of gravel race that you are doing on quite different equipment, I think.
2: Yeah, I, mean, I guess the the biggest thing is, you know, these riders were still on road bikes. You know, they probably went mm. up and I, I heard in the commentary, you know, talking about the tire choice that they probably made. You know, a lot of the riders were probably on, you know, 28 to 32 C tires. You know, most of the gravel events that I do, I'll be on, you know, at minimum a 42 mil tire because the whole race is on, you know, on dirt, gravel, sometimes some single track, but, um, you know, the, 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 gravel, you know, in Strada Bianca and that we saw yesterday, it's actually quite dangerous gravel in the sense that, you know, oftentimes it's really hard pack and it's kind of, you know, especially when you have like hard pack kind of marbles on top of, you know, a hard surface, like you actually start to slide more than you do, especially on a road tire, you're running higher PSI than you would be in a, in a pure gravel tire. Um, but that's another thing I just noticed in Pogachar is how confident he is riding his bike. You know, there's a couple of times he didn't really slide out or wash out, but he's taking these, you know, kind of dangerous turns at, at pretty high speed um, with confidence and, you know, not really thinking twice about, you know, is he going to wash out? And I think, you know, one of the big differences between the race we saw yesterday and Strada Bianchi is that the... The course, while it has a similar amount of climbing, the climbing comes in a much different way. You know, Strada Bianchi has these, like, really steep and kind of technical downhills and then straight up these super steep climbs. And yesterday, although they accrued a lot of climbing, it tended to be a little bit more open and rolly versus kind of the steep, punchy climbs you get around Siena and, and Strada Bianchi. Um but yeah, I mean it's when you see an athlete like like Pogachar, you know, the fact that he decided to go so far out, you know, maybe he also realizes hey, if I'm by myself, I'm going to be a bit safer. I can kind of choose the speed in which I, you know, enter and exit turns. Um because he, you know, clearly at some point in the race he knew he was the strongest rider out there, so he didn't necessarily need to attack 40 odd k to go, but you know, maybe it was part of his training, maybe it was something to prepare for For Strata Bianchi. Mm. Um but yeah, I mean that's one of the I mean, He hasn't
1: even he hasn't even been to altitude yet. Um, a lot of the top riders at this point in the year, and this is something that's you know changed. You mentioned a minute ago the the burden that this creates of spending so much time at altitude, but a, a lot of the top riders have already spent a significant number of days, weeks at altitude this year. Pogacar is yet to do that.
2: Yeah. I mean, and that's one thing, you know, w- was this just part of his was this a, essentially a big training ride? <laughs> you know, which is which is mm-hmm. a scary thought to realize that, you know, maybe, you know, someone came on the radio and said, Hey, like, you know, you need this race hasn't been hard enough. You need to like, you know, get a little bit more out of it. Let's let's see what you can do, you know, hitting out from from distance. And likewise, you know, he also has a strong team there. You know, with uh Mark Hershey and Tim Wellens, you know, behind, it was really you know, it wasn't really a risk of them losing the race, having Pogachar go up the road, you know, he got a kind of yeah what he wanted out of the race and you know his teammates as well behind were kind of in you know, in the wings waiting in case, you know, he did come back or he did have a mechanical or flat. But, um, it'll be interesting to see what, you know, the rest of a season looks like. I would, I would really love to see someone like Pogachar or, you know, Pidcock or Art, you know, come to some of these American gravel races because, you know, those riders in particular are also incredibly good bike handlers. And I think it would really just, I mean, it'd put people like myself to shame because I know how, how talented those athletes are, you know, the work that they put in, it would be, uh, it would be kind of eye opening to see some of those riders come to race something like Unbound. I mean, I don't think he's going to do that.
1: But as Lionel said, there does seem to be a conscious effort. And in fact, we heard about this from Alan Piper a few weeks ago on the podcast that um, he wants to keep doing different things. He wants to... I suppose cultivate this sort of beginner's mindset in a certain sense by by going to races he's not done before. It's not been confirmed yet that he's going to Paris, but it sounds as though he might. And then, you know, I guess this is something we can all relate to, really. When we change things up in our lives, do things differently, then sometimes you know you get a real sense of the synapses firing in a different way, and you know you're being more present. Um, I don't know if you ever experienced that in your career, Ian.
2: Well, I definitely have. And that's kind of what brought me to gravel racing in the first place was mm-hmm. that it was something completely new and different. And, you know, I'm doing Cape Epic in a couple of weeks, which is, you know, something completely new and different. And maybe that's one thing looking back on my time at Sky especially was that it was so robotic in the sense of the, you know, for the riders like Froomey, you know, Garen Thomas, Wiggins at the time, mm-hmm. you know, their preparation for the tour was like, hey, this is a, this is our plan. We're going to do training camp in Mallorca. We're going to do Tenerife. We're going to do Perinice, nice And it was pretty much just cut and paste year over year. And, you know, what sort of kind of trap or rut do you get yourself stuck in when you're not willing to change that up? And is that maybe why we haven't seen anyos, you know, be hyper competitive? Well, they've been competitive, not win the tour in the last couple of years is because they've had to they haven't adapted to, you know, keeping things fresh with maybe some of their their key athletes. That said, I've seen that, you know. Uh Garrett Thomas is, you know, gallivanting around the world, training in New Zealand and California. So maybe he maybe he's getting his freshness mm-hmm. in, in training rather than racing. Um but it is something to consider and, and especially, you know, for these younger riders like Pagachar, keeping it fresh may actually, you know, prolong their career by, you know, throwing their hand in, in different races. I know.
1: There was a lot of racing at the weekend, as we said, um, particularly in the Iberian Peninsula, all sorts of racing, Murcia, Almeria, uh, and the race in Portugal as well. Um, any other, Anything else that's caught your eye over the last few days? Well, the Tour of Oman
3: is underway, isn't it, Daniel? Uh, Mateo Jorgensen yes. won uh, the uphill finish a couple of days ago, and uh, I don't know whether you saw the clip, but the the barriers blew out into the road quite dramatically. I mean, uh, you know... I, I, I'm all for innovative course design, but uh, having sort of moving obstacles is probably not something, not the direction the UCI really wants to go in. But in response to that, I did see that Movistar started calling themselves the Blues on social media. And I'm all for this, cycling teams with nicknames. You know, that would... uh, The Blues? The Blues. Just the... The Blues. As in, you know, I don't know, um, who who in football are the Blues? Birmingham City are the Blues, aren't they? Come on, you Blues. Movistar. I I like that. I mean... (laughs) um somewhat bland is it not it's a bit bland admittedly but cycling team nicknames maybe throw this open to the listeners has anyone got any suggestions for nicknames for the teams i mean
0: mean,
1: wow coffee this could go out there on a limb and call themselves the reds (laughs) or
3: or the the loan sharks i don't know um the the money the money lenders i'm not sure
1: yes um well, let's let's talk for a second about a um, Movistar rider, Matteo Jorgensen. Um, Ian, I said that you have been surpassed. Now you've have you've had your crown stolen as the foremost strawberry blonde climber um, in American road cycling. And uh, Matteo Jorgensen, he's a, he's a rider very much on the up, isn't he? I don't know what he's going to become yet, but he is certainly getting stronger every year, and that trend seems to be continuing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, you know. He's still young. Um, I think he actually has made like a pretty wise career decision by being at Movistar. You know, I think, you know, a lot of young American writers. you know, when you look at my... That's that's a sentence you don't hear very often. No, but it's true though, because they haven't, they haven't put him in a box of, you know, this is the type of writer you, you are, you know, when you look at, you know, I guess my generation, myself, Dombrowski, you know, even Warbass to a, to a sense, you know, we went to these big teams, you know, prestigious teams, and we kind of slotted into a domestique role, you know, myself at Sky, I guess, Joe as well, you know, Larry at BMC. And by Mateo going to Movistar, you know, he's kind of been able to experiment and explore the world tour a bit more. You know, he's done some of the spring classics. He's done, you know, he's had opportunities at some big races. So, he's actually kind of been able to find what type of rider he is. You know, a lot of, there's kind of been this, Mm -hmm. you know, effect of my generation where all the previous, you know, top American riders were GC time trial riders. So, we all wanted to be a GC time trial rider. And Mateo has kind of come in, you know, a little bit later and went to a team where they've allowed him the opportunity to kind of find where he is, where he, you know, where his performance and where mm. his physiology is best suited in the world tour. And so to see him, you know, last year, he was what twice he was fourth on stages at the, at the tour from a breakaway. You know, so he's been knocking at the door and he's right there and, you know, to see him win this race. And I saw something on Twitter about his power numbers for the last, you know, 29 mm. seconds of his attack. A gazillion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, It's really impressive. Um, you know, and, and that team's obviously changed a lot over the, the last couple of years, you know, Will Barda, another, you know, American and both Mateo and, uh, Will were roommates of mine and niece. So I know them fairly well, but it's been awesome to see, you know, these riders kind of go to a non-traditional, you know, English speaking team and actually kind of find a home there and, you know, to really blossom there and become, you know, integral parts of, of a team that, you know, is traditionally been, you know, of Spanish, you know, origin and, you know, kind of passion. Um, yeah, I mean Matteo. I think he's. I think he's got a lot to show for in the coming years. And I, he, he's not really a pure climber. He's not really a time trialist. You know, he, he really is kind of like a, a modern, you know, rouleur. You know, not to the point where he's going to be winning, you know, bunch sprints. But he, you know, he's really competitive on, you know, a bunch of different courses. That's a good point you
1: make about Movistar because they've had a lot of criticism in the Spanish press for having a, a really sort of calcified kind of kernel of seven or eight riders, a sort of a team that has always done the Vuelta and has mostly done the Tour de France. And I'm talking about guys like Valverde and Mas Latterly. And in the Spanish press, they've been criticised for not changing up a bit more. However, that leaves a lot of the calendar for other riders like Jorgensen, a rider who's probably, you know, not fully developed yet. The Giro, pretty much any other one-day race you care to mention on the calendar is not the same priority that the Vuelta is and the Tour is for Movistar. So there are opportunities at a team like that.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean and I think, you know, for for someone like Mateo, you know, he you know, well he got the opportunity to race in the tour last year. And you know, Movistar is not the team that they were when, you know, in the kind of their heyday when they had, you know, Valverde on the team and you know, they were riding the front with with you know Team Sky or, you know, BMC, you know, they are kind of by no means are they a second division team, but in a lot of races they're they have eight riders on the start line and they're just there racing and everyone, you know, even in high end yesterday, you know, they have a young rider up the road, they're kind of slotted in more to a team that is just participating in races and riders can actually take you know, individual opportunities to go for a result, and I think we're seeing that a lot more with with that team, especially with the absence of of Valverde, which does provide a lot of opportunity for for Mateo to kind of carve out his own career in a team. And you know, the other thing is, up until recently, that team hasn't had training camps. You know, so for an American rider like Mateo, I think it's allowed him to just stay in you know where he's at in Nice. I'm not sure if he's working with a team coach. I assume he he probably is. Um, but to kind of just do his own thing, and I think a lot of American riders especially come through a system where they're kind of independent and they do their own thing. And mm-hmm. so for him to be at a team like Movistar is kind of a perfect fit because he can just do his training. He can you know kind of get ready for the races on his own, show up, and then, you know, I don't know. Probably not speak to anyone at the dinner table because he doesn't speak Spanish, and just go to the so race and pretend he doesn't understand. it sound
1: like gravel racing, you know, like <laughs> yeah. privateer racing. Yeah, maybe he it's is. <laughs> Chaps, so just last thing um, on the weekends racing. I don't know if you saw Lionel any of the race in Portugal, the Figueira, da Foz classic. I enjoyed the I enjoyed the this this blends of landscapes there. It's a new race, first edition this year. There were sections, beautiful sections in eucalyptus trees then some select sections on the atlantic coastline um some very steep climbs in residential areas it's always nice at this time of year just to well get a sort of helicopter tour around the around the south of europe effectively isn't it and uh um, particularly when when it's a new race and it's a landscape we're not particularly familiar with.
3: Well, yeah, I mean, we've got through talking about the Hayen-Palaiso race without mentioning the olive groves and the, the giant golden olive that Pogacar was presented with on the podium. I mean, there is yin and yang million. to this, though. There is yin and yang. I mean, the, the scenery... So 60
1: million olive trees yeah, it, in the province of Hayen. Uh, the, yeah. the
3: scenery was beautiful. The roads looked fantastic. I mean, the course itself was interesting. Um, in complete contrast to the Clássica the Almeria which I mean th- that is not an attractive course is it the roads are wide I mean they're on dual carriageways it's uh it's kind of um reminiscent of the the Vuelta in its uh pre-ASO funk before it went uh you know before it had that kind of makeover and and started seeking out the steep climbs you know there would be well you know a week 10 days of the Vuelta just riding up um, you know, six-lane highways, coned off sometimes with with the traffic open on the other side, and uh, Alamaria doesn't look particularly um, appealing. But one thing that did catch the eye just from those two races. Uh, ben Turner, I mean, he had a very impressive classics campaign on his debut season last spring. I remember seeing him in the velodrome at the end of Paris-Roubaix and, and he'd had a really, really hard day that day. He finished 11th and uh, he admitted that he was absolutely knackered. You know, the the the, the spring campaign for a neo-pro had been uh, pretty heavy. I think given the way he's just started, I know it's very early, but uh, he's going to be a big part of the Ineos Grenadier's classics campaign and wouldn't be surprised if he's, he's standing on a you know really prestigious podium this spring given the way that he's set out already
1: well chaps we talked about a, a gravel race of sorts in part two now we're going to switch our focus and talk more about gravel racing but gravel racing as i think most of us have come to recognize it as a, as a world apart to a certain extent it's a world that you almost retired to, in from pro road racing a couple of years ago. Um, you've already certainly made a name for yourself in that gravel racing scene, won some prestigious races.
2: Um, three years in, are we now? Two or three years in? Yeah, well, I guess this will be, yeah, well, 2020 was kind of a wash, so this will be my third year of doing the gravel scene, yeah. And just listening back earlier today, in fact, to some of the interviews you did or
1: have done about gravel racing, you, you predicted, you knew you were entering a very dynamic discipline, a new discipline that was going to change a lot um, quickly and it was going to evolve very quickly. Um, thinking back on those two, three years now, has it evolved
2: in the way that you expected or could have predicted? Um, I guess in hindsight, it has changed as I would have predicted. It's happened much quicker than I would have thought, you know, when I joined or started racing gravel, you know, I guess in 2021 was when I first did a, a, you know, a bigger event. Um, It was still this very, I don't say grassroots because there was, there was a tension, but it was kind of, you know, for example, someone like myself who had left the world tour, I'd very much, you know, kind of retired, but I still loved riding my bike and I could show up at races and I could be competitive. You know, obviously last year with the introduction of the UCI gravel race, well, the series and then the World Championships, you know, we saw this huge influx of, you know, active professional riders kind of take part in gravel. You know, even last year Cam Worf from uh from Enios came over and did did Unbound. I actually spoke to Rod Ellensworth last year at the tour and he said that Pidcock was interested in coming to Unbound. Although I think with with the tour kind of being on his radar, probably won't be coming to the race this year, but who knows? Um you know, so I guess the professionalism and just, I don't say the professionalism, but the, I mean, the the competitiveness of the races have become much more serious. You know, I just got back from from Tucson, Arizona, where I was out there, you know, riding my bike for 10 days and, you know, training. Um, and I was out there with Keegan Svenson and Russell Finsewald, who are both, you know, kind of the top tier, you know, American gravel racers. And they're they're living, profe- you know, they're doing 35-hour training weeks now, which, right. you know, when I first started gravel, you could kind of, you know, you could train, be fit, have a very balanced lifestyle and still be competitive. And the direction I think it's going is that it's, you know, people are making careers out of it now. You know, when I think when I joined, it was much more of, you know, it was something someone did on the side, like for myself, you know, I have a full-time job. This was something I could continue to race and do on the side and still be competitive. But as we go forward, I feel like athletes are you know, this is their career now. And this, you know, especially in the U.S., this is an opportunity for riders who, you know, maybe aren't doing road racing because there's a lack of racing here in the U.S. This is their professional career now. And I think this is kind of expanding globally as well. You know, you see this huge amount of, you know, races taking place in, in Spain, the U.K., Germany, Belgium. You know, it's really kind of globalized. Um I think the epicenter is kind of still here in the U S for the moment, but I do see it kind of shifting to becoming more of a European sport, especially as the UCI kind of continues to to grow their series. And, you know, everyone wants to wear a rainbow Jersey. So I think that we're going to continue to see, you know, more Europeans kind of at the forefront of, especially the, you know, the UCI side of racing.
1: And I know again, based on interviews you've been given recently that, This is not what you intend to do. You don't tend to necessarily double down and take that path that you just talked about there of people really leading a life that's akin to what a road professional is doing, you know, training 35 hours a week and really trying your very hardest to win the most prestigious races on the calendar and, and make as much money as possible effectively. And why don't you do that? You're only 32, I believe. Um, is it solely a lifestyle decision based on the fact that you've got family now or, or other, other things that prevent you from doing that or, or make you not want to do that?
2: Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I guess that's, it's kind of this, it's almost this curse of like knowing your. are capable of doing it, but mm. do you want to do it? And I guess, you know, I went through a long process, you know, kind of mentally and, you know, just through the the period in, in 2019 when I had this crash, you know, I decided to retire. You know, that was a really hard time for me to like just realize that I may never race my bike again. And you know, something I had been chasing since I was, you know, 14 years old. You know, I took a full time job at Wahoo. And then I decided, you know, once I'd already taken the job, Hey, I might as well go to these events and participate. I didn't realize or expect to do as well as I did because the, the level wasn't world tour racing. Um, so to double down and go back would in my mind almost kind of feel like going backwards, you know, okay, I I've, I've done that life. I've lived that. I know what it takes. I know what I'm capable of. If I put the time in, But then where do I find myself when I'm 35? Do I find myself, you know, where I was when I was 28? It's like, okay, well, now I got to reinvent myself. I need to find a job. I kind of got to go through this whole process again of, you know, who am I as a a person without being a professional racer? Um, You know, over the last year, really, since I won Unbound in 2021, I've kind of found myself in this position where, like, cycling has become a bigger part of my life than it was, you know, prior to that. Um, But I guess for me, it's more a case of... And, and maybe similar to, to to Dennis and, you know, Pino and, and Sagan, it's like, you know, what more do I need to prove to myself by winning the biggest events? You know, I, you know, I unbounded my mind is still the biggest gravel event. You know, of course, it's not the world championships of gravel, which I will not participate in, not out of spite, but just, you know, I, I had a professional racing career. Um, and at this point, I guess in my life, I'm not looking for the sport as on the racing side to change my life. You know, I'm not trying to, you know, make more money or, you know, Oh, I need to buy a bigger house. If I, you know, win a big race, it's, you know, it, it's very much fun for me. And it's kind of this balance of how do I keep it fun. And at the moment that's still trying to be competitive given the, you know, the limitations I have of, of time and, you know, living in new England, um, as photographed as it is, it's oftentimes very cold. Like it is right now it's, it's snowing. Um, so for me, it's, you know, how do I kind of stay involved with this in the sport? Um, but still kind of remember that, i'm doing this with the emphasis of you know still loving riding my bike and that's kind of the the driving factor at the moment is you know still enjoying what i'm doing but still you know trying to be competitive but within kind of certain boundaries Mm.
1: lionel bernie same question to you why aren't you aiming to win the biggest events on the gravel calendar (laughs) i mean
2: the the list of reasons
3: is so long daniel i don't think we've got time um i do think though that um you know there's a there's a kind of an intersection uh a crossover on the on the sort of the the diagram between um road races that feature gravel such as strada bianca high-end perezo there are you know there are plenty of others that have been long established i mean um the, trobro leon uh, an event um close to my heart because i went and rode to cyclo sportive there a few years ago uh, didn't win it um was was quite quite far towards the back but a beautiful course you know combining the the coastal countryside and the farm tracks. Um, The Grand Prix Herning in Denmark is another uh, gravel race, really, before we knew the term gravel race. Paris Tour had a a sort of foray onto the gravel, didn't it, Um, that was unpopular with certain team managers, uh, certain riders, and I think there'll always be this kind of grumble that, you know, gravel should stay in gravel events. But um, the UCI World Championship gravel race is this sort of crossover between Um, races that are for the gravel specialists and world tour pros I mean it was interesting that the inaugural championship last year in Veneto in Italy the the podium was all world tour riders wasn't it Gianni Vermeersch won it um Alpecin de Koenig rider of course Daniel Oss was second and Matthew van der Poel was third and I think that that race and the series Ian may well be able to um, correct me here but I think that there's more of a, a sort of mountain bike DNA to the type Um, to that type of race it's not uh it's not a road race with gravel it is a a specific gravel race and and the actual way the racing shakes down um equipment aside is more similar to a mountain bike race a cross-country mountain bike race than um than, than than a road race and i think that you know there's no need to pigeonhole all of these things is there i mean cycling is cycling and i think you know i always find it quite frustrating in the grand tours when there is a gravel section and the, the sort of talking point for two three days leading up to it uh, is oh should gravel have a place in the grand tours i mean they have the same argument when the cobbles feature and um you know the argument always boils down to well it's a, it would be a shame to lose the tour de france because of a puncture on the gravel or, or what have you but i mean you know kind of a redundant argument for me because misfortune is as much a part of um you know bunch racing uh, as as any of the other factors that, that determine the winners you know a puncture is perhaps more likely on a gravelly surface but you know punctures can happen at, at any point and I think that um you know Daniel you were sort of posing the question you know this this battle for the soul of gravel racing I think it's interesting that the UCI has uh, tried to kind of you know grab hold of the reins and uh you know take a sort of ownership of um of the gravel scene where as i say the dna of it is kind of um lends much more to the that sort of privateer spirit you know the the early pioneers of mountain biking Mm. and if you look back 30 odd years you know, it was kind of the UCI's involvement in mountain biking that sort of knocked all of the interesting, exciting edges off that scene and tried to make it conform and tried to make it like an off-road version of, of this, um, you know, the, the Classics World Cup um, that that we had back in the day. And I, I think it would be a shame to try to um, pigeonhole gravel as, you know, something that is either exclusive to a certain type of rider or, you know, um, it, it only counts if world tour riders are kind of lending it their uh, you know stamp of prestige i think that uh, interesting different courses different surfaces do have a place in the classics in the grand tours i think the fact that the high-end praise race has come along and is a compelling watch i'd much rather watch that for a monday afternoon than the classica de almeria or you know a another um, you know race ends in a sprint held on you know you know gray uninteresting roads Um, And it is about trying to attract eyeballs, isn't it? I can certainly see a race like Jaén Palaiso kind of, you know, establishing itself in the same way that Strada Bianca has done. And we've talked at length about that over the years, about how, because of the character of the course, that, um, you know, that lent it a kind of a a modern classic feel, uh, you know, after, what, two, three editions.
2: Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, there was a moment not all that long ago that I was, you know, in a way frustrated that the UCI had come in and, you know, they were changing the sport, but that's just, and I guess my fear was that it was going to change kind of the the smaller events here in the U S that like those events were going to disappear. and Everything was going to be funneled into the UCI, you know, racing and people were going to forget about these, you know, small events that really bring out new people to the sport and are really, you know, f- built for not so much the racers, but for the, you know, the general public to come and participate. And the more that I have seen it evolve, you know, those events aren't in jeopardy. You know, there's still gonna be space for, you know, the local you know, I'm not sure if you've ever done the the dirty reaver over in the UK Lionel, but there's still these events that kind of have built you know, well, that's, one history of, that's one of its mid- big
1: goals in 2023.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but you know, th- there's still space for all these events and, you know, the people who want to take this to the next level and, you know, commit to it as a professional career and try to become the the world champion, you know, that's possible. The people who want to go to the race, you know, down the road and, you know, pay $70 and have a beer and drink food and ride there with their friends, that's still going to be there too. So the more that I kind of see the evolution of it, there's kind of space for everyone in gravel, um, and I think it's it, really, everyone can kind of just pick their own path of of what they want this this discipline to be. Because same with road racing, not everyone who rides a road bike even watches the Tour de France, but they still want to go out and ride their road bike. So I think, you know, oftentimes people try to pick a side and, and you know, raise hell over what they think should happen. But I guess the more I, maybe the more I see it, it's like, hey, there's enough space for everyone to to find what. Events and courses. Suit I, them. I have
3: done the tour of the cornfields in Cambridgeshire, Ian, which is a fantastic event. Uh, just, it's an off-road sportive, really. A um, lot of it on sort of farm tracks and bridleways, and and uh, takes you in and out of fields, and you know, pop out onto a quiet road and then back into a field. Really well designed course. It was held in early September last year, and and I went and rode that with uh, our friend Simon Gill, the photographer. And uh, I suppose when When I'm thinking about sort of how um, the the UCI Gravel Series and the UCI World Championships has you know established itself uh, quite quickly, Um, although there isn't actually a venue yet for this year's UCI Gravel World Championships, is there? It hasn't been confirmed. Same as last year it's the same as last year is it same as last year back in veneto okay um but i think uh the 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 thing for me will be how the actual racing looks in terms of making it into a a a television sport um you know one of the things that made mountain biking it didn't quite click for me when when there was a a period where the um, world championship and world cup mountain bike events were on is that Unfortunately, they kind of shake down into a bit of a time trial in the countryside. And uh, I think the difference between a road race that takes place on gravel, such as uh, uh, Strada Bianca, and Paraiso is that there is still that tactical element, that bunch element, the the the, the teamwork element. I, I know that uh, Tade Pogacar has reduced both Strada Bianca and Hayen Perez into a sort of 45-kilometre time, time trial on gravel. Um, but uh, certainly uh yeah i'm all for all for seeing you know as much crossover uh, as possible so that that we don't have kind of uh you know berlin walls between different disciplines in the sport
1: in there are a lot of parallels between i see between this world and the world of ultra trail running um And just, I mean, new disciplines, new sports, new types of music or whatever, they always undergo these kind of growing pains. I mean, just two sort of examples of things that have happened in trail running, in the kind of effort, in this kind of collective effort on the part of some people to keep it exclusive. One thing that's happened is the races have become more extreme, so a hundred Miles or kilometers was used to be seen as the kind of holy grail, the benchmark. Now you're getting races 200, 300, 500. And then I mentioned a few weeks ago on the podcast, there was this kind of watershed moment. And this was not, it's not ultra running, but sort of sky running, um, where two athletes in one of the most prestigious trail races last year mountain trail races the Sierra zinal in switzerland tested positive um, there were dope tests and there were two kenyan athletes that tested positive positive. Um, and i suppose both both of these things again reflect the difficulty of of, of, of retaining whatever it was that made these sports these disciplines these fractions of sports offshoots of sports really appealing in the first place um i'm just wondering that the you know when i say there about running races getting longer and more extreme is that something that's happened or might happen or is there any move to make that happen
2: in gravel racing I mean, in a way there, you know, the the events and I I guess the initial kind of foundation of these events in the U S you know, unbound in particular, which is kind of the the oldest and most prestigious, maybe not the oldest, but the most prestigious, you know, it's 200 miles, which is Mm. an incredibly long event. Um, you know, I think as we look to the UCI, you know, no one wants to sit down and, and watch a ten hour event on, mm-hmm. you know, relatively mm-hmm. deserted, quiet roads. You know, so I think one thing that the UCI is doing is, you know, they're gonna they're gonna standardize what a gravel event looks like because the way that they have it set up where there's these qualifying races, you know, you have to have a more or less the same course in, you know, in Singapore, in Belgium, in the US for someone to qualify for the race in Italy, you can't have someone qualify on a 50 kilometer course for 150 kilometer world championships. So they are going to kind of identify and kind of standardize what a gravel race looks like. Um, As far as in the U S you know, I think there are quite a few you know existing events that are in that, you know, five to seven hour distance. Um, But most of these events also offer multiple length courses, you know, so the events that are, you know, nine to 10 hours also have a, you know, a five hour or, you know, if there's a 200 mile event. They'll also have a hundred mile event and maybe even a 25 mile event. Mm. Um, you know, it, it is kind of going to be interesting to see like, you know, I think as humans, we tend to kind of keep pushing the limits of what's possible. You know, an Ironman used to be an ultra event and mm-hmm. now there's an ultra Ironman. It's like an Ironman's not enough. Um, you know, even unbound has the unbound XL, which is 350 miles, which takes, you know, 20 some odd hours. So I think people are going to continue to kind of push the limits of, of what's possible. Um, You know, having delved into the world of ultra running a bit. It's like, at what point does competitive sport? Well, I mean, at what point does it become survival over competition mm. where it's like, at what point does a running race become a walking race? And what point does a, a bike race become a race of survival? Um, but, you know, as, as kind of humans continue to figure out this ultra endurance, you know, how to not sleep for, for days on end. You know, when you look at some of these, you know, bike packing races, it, it's pretty wild. Um, you know, and I think that's where there kind of still is this beauty of professional road racing is the races are still short enough to be action packed. And do you lose some of that action when you extend something beyond, you know, the 15 hour mark? Does it become more of a race of just, you know slow oh. slow moving individuals right, you know yes exactly hobbling over rocks and you know walking their bikes up hills tough, tough mm. sell as
3: well um, to persuade somebody to sit down with you to watch 15 hours of uh unbound excel if they're they're not really into watching cycling on tv just while we're talking about you know the the the, the crossover and uh the the rights and wrongs of of whether you know gravel should be in um, you know the grand tours I can just hear the voice of Francois Thomaso over my shoulder reminding me that uh, back in the the dawn of the Tour de France so pretty much all of the roads were gravel or, or cobbled and uh, you know that that was uh, that was what the sport was when it started out so you know as he says you know there's very little that's um, there's very little in the sport that's actually new although that's that's probably not true either but uh, uh, yeah I think
2: uh, well and yeah. I mean, everything's, everything's, you know, secular as well. It, it comes around. It's funny. I was speaking to Pete Kenna last year at the Tour de France and, you know, he was joking about, well, what comes after gravel? He says, oh, what comes after gravel is the Tour de France. And we're seeing that, you know, someone like Keegan Svenson, who won, you know, most of the gravel races in the U.S. last year got offers at the world tour. So it's like, you know, you know, at what point does the attention come back on to, I mean, the Tour de France is still the biggest event, but, you know, for a while, it's going to be you know world tour riders coming to gravel, and then it's going to be gravel riders going back to the world tour. It's like everything's just going to keep going around and around.
3: Indoor gravel racing. That will be it next.
1: <laughs> there
2: we go. Indoor gravel cyclocross.
1: Three flavors of hell. Um, Ian, just before we move back onto the asphalt, um, just tell us about your plans for the next three or four weeks it's about three or four weeks away, isn't it? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So I'll be heading to Cape Epic with a uh, fellow, I guess, cycling podcast, uh, contributor, Mitch Docker. We're going to be heading down to Cape Epic and doing the eight day mountain bike stage race down there. Um, we're keep telling ourselves it can't be harder than Perry although I'm sure it's going to be very different, although the weather should be better. Um, that's kind of the big, uh, event that I'm doing this spring. And then once I get back from that, I'll kind of be a, a slow burn to kind of get ready for, for unbound gravel, do a Number of gravel events here in the U.S., um, leading up to Unbound out in Oregon, and then Gravel Locos down in Texas, and then Unbound. I guess is kind of from a performance standpoint the one race that I'd like to be in good shape for for this season. And then uh, how knows, far did you say
1: Unbound was? How many miles?
2: Two hundred miles. What is that? Three hundred and fifty k. Right, something like that. Yeah.
1: Where, what would be when you get to the pointy end of your preparation? There, what would be the sort of the real the kind of last big training session? I mean, how close do you get to doing that kind of distance?
2: Uh, Two weeks out, there's a race that's in Texas. That's like 150 miles. So that's probably about a seven hour event. And that's usually, I mean, I I guess the way I see it, it's similar to marathon training. If you're training for a marathon, you don't go run a marathon. You know, you might train, you know, 18 miles or 17 miles. So that race kind of two weeks out, that's, you know, seven hour mark will be, should be enough to kind of, you know, prepare me for, you know, a nine, 10 hour event.
0: The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science.
3: Thank you very much to Science in Sport for supporting the Cycling Podcast. I know that the much sought after vanilla gels are back in stock limited edition quantities only so you may need to be quick but go to scienceinsport.com and uh, if you miss out on the vanilla gels well they'll have something that takes your fancy no doubt the full range of energy products is at scienceinsport.com and we are waiting to hear the details of the science in sport Strava cycling challenge which is coming up next month in March the details of that are being worked on by science in sport at the moment but that's something that I'm looking forward to I think I'll probably take part in that because I've got a couple of big rides coming up in March and April and a Strava challenge is just the impetus I need to get the kilometers under my belt so as soon as we have some details on that we'll share them in the podcast Uh, but in the meantime go to scienceinsport.com for everything you need to fuel your ride before during and afterwards
1: Well, chaps, last week in the pod, we heard from an EF Education First rider who had had a rip-roaring start to the season. That team has had a pretty rip-roaring start to the season. Um, That rider was Nielsen Paulus, winner of GP uh, La Marseillaise and the Etoile de Bessege. Uh, The same team has been winning in the last few days again with uh, Richard Carapaz, won the Ecuadorian national championship. But we did mention also last week that Esteban Chavez was the new Colombian national champion. Um, he rides for EF Education Easy Post and I spoke to him yesterday about that victory back home in Colombia and about some of the adversity that he's had to overcome to effectively relaunch his career. Here's Esteban Chavez. After many
4: disappointments for last year, this year start like this is it's pretty nice and also we had a lot of lucky, so like everything is
1: going well you you talked afterwards about how this had been a dream for a long time to win the Colombian national championship. Just talk to me a bit about that I mean how far back does the does the dream go well you just start this dream
4: like you are a child because when you are like a junior or under 16 you're going to the national champion and this is the biggest race for us and for example in junior or even under 23 if you get the medal the gold you go straight to the pan-american championships or you go straight to the world so it's a big it's a big deal you mm, know yeah there you go to professional and if you dream always, like dream, like wear this jersey in, in the races. You will have the strap always in your in your jersey after after that. So it's a dream for that.
1: And and the day itself. I mean, I watched some of the highlights, and the atmosphere looked incredible. I mean, it looks like a different sport when you watch a race in Colombia. Okay, we have. Big crowds at races in Europe, but the passion and the color, and also the racing itself was kind of—it was all action. There were lots of attacks. It was chaotic. I mean, what was what was your plan for the race? What did you th- what did you hope was going to happen for you? Yeah, it's
4: it's pretty unbelievable, uh, especially because we race all the five hours in the circuit. We don't mm. have our a previous road. So the atmosphere in, in the town was unbelievable. The people is so passionate and you can see that in the in the footage. <clears throat> we start with, with Cabarco just like being a uh, low profile because we see the riders came from Argentina were pretty fast, so it's their responsibility to continue like that. Mm. The team manager it- Control the, control the race. So it's, it's perfect for us. And after when it's two laps to go, which is less than 50 kilometers to the finish line is when the, when the legs talks, you know, and, and the rider save more energy for the first 150 is the rider can do the difference. And I think I'm, I'm really good in, in being a, a low profile and being saving energy. And that is the, that is the key at the final.
1: Yeah, it was a I mean it's a long race, isn't it? Two hundred and thirty-five kilometers. So it's like a it's like a monument. It's like when you were Lombardy almost. Exactly. So you need to save lots amount of
4: energy at the beginning. So try to do less change of rhythms, try to go with the flow, try to you know, and the people are really excited because of the crowd, all the passion, is the nationals all the families are there, the television is a big deal for Colombia, so you can get overexcited and waste a lot of bullets at the beginning.
1: Mm. And Esteban, we all saw your tears. Um, A a word that everyone uses and and have used about you in the last few days since you won the national championships is resilience. And we, we know that you've had difficult moments. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you realised it's on Thursday, it will be 10 years exactly since your crash in La Gualia, which sort of defined your career um, in some ways. But then there was also the epstein um the virus, and there have been lots of other things. But what was, when all of, all of that emotion comes out, what, what is in that emotion? What, what is, is there a big set back a big obstacle that you've overcome that's in that emotion that's in those tears (laughs) yeah man it's like
4: everything together in a moment so i can not keep to to myself and i just start crying because i just keep fighting and i keep believing and all these new Team. So these new riders came and they are super strong. And and sometimes you you even stop to believe. You're like, ah, maybe I'm not the same anymore. I, maybe it's my time to go home. You know, like, why am why I I'm still doing all these sacrifices? Mm. And it's not just myself. It's the people also around you, around one professional athlete all the people around suffer a lot with you, you know, all the process, you are, at, you have a different style of life, and people still believing and also you, and after many years, many months, like, hitting the wall, hitting the wall, hitting the wall, mm. always, the, the group is gone, and the DS is in the car, just pass you, and look at you, like, ah. you know, it's yeah. hard, so when you have one day like this is like everything payback it's pretty
1: nice it's pretty nice that that feeling and yeah is it, worth it i mean i mentioned some of the two of the big problems big obstacles you've had you've had other ones as well but last year i mean you know you, you had a good year i think your first year with the ef but you didn't go to the tour de france i mean was was last year difficult as well Yeah, pretty
4: hard because the team actually is awesome, but I've been eight or nine years with another organization and the third year change is pretty rough. Uh, I'm one person can adapt easily to any organization, I think, but... I need time as well, like every single one in the world. And mm. last year is one year to adapt to the team, to adapt to the different culture, to adapt to the different bicycle, different environment. And also we had a really tough year because of, of the regulation with the points. Yes. But, you know, I try to do my best. I try to write really well for myself and also for the team. And yeah, it's pretty tough. It's hard. It's not easy. But at the end, when we look back, it's it's a good year really, really well. I talking with Juanma once. Juanma is one of the directors with Adin yeah. and he said uh to me like I I Stefan, you you no need to, to be worried about you are uh, sembrando antes de de cosechar. How do you say that in English? They're like
1: are reaping before you've sowed. Uh,
4: yeah, this is the this is the thing, and I think Juanma is one guy with a lot of experience, and yeah, we can see that. Also, I pass uh, a good winter, a good off season. I look really well after myself. I work pretty hard, not just my the team around and my family. And, wife and people involved in this work really hard and yeah a start like this is is, is is pretty nice but also we need to remember it's just the start we need to keep working and it's a
1: long way. Esteban I just wanted to ask you about one more thing um, well, well we'll talk a bit about your plans in a second but um, in February you know a lot of the riders who usually race in or in january a lot of the riders who are usually in europe rigoberto nairo and so on were in colombia and rigoberto talked about the young colombian riders and and he said that they're not developing or that we, we don't have so many good young riders anymore. I mean, you've got your fundacion uh, Esteban Chavez, which you produced Santiago Buitrago. You've got other riders there at the moment, young riders who will hopefully make it to Europe one day. But how do you see the situation in, as far as young riders in Colombia is concerned?
4: Yeah, I think we, we don't need to be worried. We, we are passing all this period when the Europe writers are really growing up in young years, And this is nothing similar in Colombia mm-hmm. ever, except to Rigoberto, which is the unique. But apart of that, all of us need a bit of more GRs, need a bit of more process, a bit of passions from the teams. And when all this fashion about young riders going really fast will pass because that will pass in any time.
1: You think it will pass?
4: I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty convinced. I I can't I can't say hundred percent sure but when the riders are at age of twenty seven of twenty six start start to retire, Mm. I think the teams will will go back and, you know, fashion always come back. <laughs> the, the, the teams will say like, oh, we are doing something wrong here. So we're back to the basics. And we are like before. You can see that with the, some of the Spanish guys like in Chem Pharma. And this is the case of Colombia. Mm-hmm. It's, a, a, it's a big talent. But when they came here to Europe, it's a big shock because the same guys with the same age... They are winning the Tour de France. I, I remember when I passed to Pro, every single one asked to Contador, asked to Valverde, asked to Purito the same question you just were asked me a few few seconds ago. And look at now all these Spanish guys leading, yeah. you know? Yeah. So for ask is is the same. I remember even sometimes the Australians are the ones who are in fashion sometimes the Colombians right now the Slovenians you know mm-hmm. so yeah it is moving it's moving and and it's a wheel and sometimes one country is in the top and sometimes one country is down like
1: Italians or UK
4: you know like mm. you know what I'm talking about
1: yeah 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 yeah. It's all cyclical. Um, Esteban, just last thing. Tell us about your race program and what your big hopes and dreams are for the season.
4: Well, I I will start in Europe in uh, Edubart tour of how do you say in yes. French?
1: Yes, in French.
4: Aud- yeah. <laughs> Audbar, Audbar tour. And I will do after that in France. We will drop an Artec Classic. Yes. And I will have a little bit of train there some weeks, and I come back for Catalonia and, and back's country. And after that, we will decide the rest of the of the season. Probably we will be near to to Carpas, and we will support him because it's, it's not a secret. He's in a really good shape in the last few seasons. Yeah. Uh, and probably the the team will be involved to him and his program. We will see.
1: I'm glad you said you're doing the tour of the Basque Country because your picture here on WhatsApp is you wearing a Real Sociedad um, kit. <laughs> what what's the story behind that? Well, when when I had the the Epstein
4: Barr virus, I spent a lot of time in. San Sebastián yeah. in one uh, house of one really good friend of mine, Imanol Isa. Okay. And he is a good fan of La Real Sociedad. And after that, I spent that time with his family and himself. I became a Real Sociedad fan as well.
1: Well Ian, Esteban Chavez, he's a guy who you raced against, I mean, you were sort of in your pomp at a similar time 2016 was his real that was his Anus Mirabilis, he was second in the Giro, he won to Lombardy, won the Giro de la Emilia. he was third overall in the Vuelta Extraordinary that 2016 uh, Vuelta a España, after that he had the Epstein-Barr virus, that was in 2018, we mentioned it in the interview there, but Chavez, um, he's a guy who, Ian, as we discussed in the interview there, has shown a lot of resilience, hasn't he? Not necessarily had the career that people would have expected back then in 2016, but he will definitely go down as one of the best Colombian riders of of all time.
2: Yeah, which which is, you know... Interesting. Thinking back to 2016, I raced with him a lot that year. I was in the Giro and the Vuelta with him that year. And, you know, he was kind of this, at the time, still relatively young, you know, this up and comer who was going to be, you know, the next great Colombian star, you know, maybe taking over from, you know, from Rigo and, and Nairo. And it's interesting, you know, 2016 was a long time ago now to think that, you know, he's still, you know, he's still been kicking around the world tour, you know, he's obviously changed teams, you know, but he's still, he's still been at a high level. But, I think like myself and many you've almost kind of forgotten about him that he's still he's still there racing and you know hearing that interview you know he is such a nice and friendly guy I don't think he has an enemy in the peloton you know everyone loves Esteban um but it it you know and someone like him you know who's had so much success early in his career you know the you know the resilience to continue to just put in the miles and work, and you know, think that you're going to come back, and you know, as he'd mentioned there, you know, the the strain that's not just on yourself as an athlete, but everyone around you, you know, your family, because you're putting in all the same amount of work, but it's just not, it's just not coming together. Um, you know, hats off to him for, for for winning the national championships, and hopefully, he continues to have a you know a successful season and can kind of refine himself. At EF this year.
1: With him, Ian, I mentioned this to you on WhatsApp yesterday when we were talking about the episode that we were going to record. Um, With him, I've had a real sense because he was so visible and he was so beloved by the media in those years when he was one of the best writers in the world. And, you know, he gave great interviews, always smiling. Everyone loved interviewing him. And the contrast then when he wasn't as successful and, you know, often team press officers were kind of offering him up, saying, oh, do you want to speak to Esteban today? And my default position, particularly when I'm working for television, is that I don't tend to interview riders if I know that it's probably not going to get used the interview because, you know, I feel it's a waste of their time. They'd rather be back in the bus getting ready for the stage and so on and so forth. And Chavez, more than anyone else, I've sort of been aware as he's been sort of riding through the mix zones every day at races, I've sort of almost felt guilty um, for three or four years now um, just sensing as well that he can't fail to notice the contrast between when he was um, one of the best riders in the world, and the the amount of interest and the amount of attention. It's not just me who's not interviewing him. It's it's most of the you know TV TV crews in the mix zone. and um, it almost creates a kind of an awkwardness. And and as I say, on my part and on our part as journalists, um, a little. It's quite heartrending, really, and um, you you do feel slightly guilty at times, or certainly a bit sheepish.
2: Yeah, I mean, especially someone like him who's probably very aware of it. You know, there were times, especially with the Colombian fans, I'm sure that he noticed, you know, at at these grand tours, you know, he would have, you know, 100 Colombians outside the bus waiting for him. And and that may still be there at, at certain events, but, you know, it's not the same attention that he's received, you know, in, in prior years. And and that's gotta be challenging as well. You know, at what point does, you know, do you start to think like, Hey, maybe I'm not capable of returning to that level. Um, but he does, he, you know, he's always seemed to have a very positive outlook on, on life. You know, this isn't the first time he's come back from injury. I know when he first joined green edge way back in, I don't know, 2013 or something, he had a pretty bad injury that he was kind of rehabbing from. So he's definitely a, a resilient rider. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's, he's had a, he's had a long career, but it's, it's also been a tough one as well.
3: It's actually a couple of days away from the 10th anniversary of that crash that he had in, uh, while riding for the Colombian team at Trofeo Legueglia in, uh, in Italy. And, uh, well, the list of injuries was extensive. He uh, fractured his collarbone, cheekbone, his skull, several ribs, punctured a lung. And it was a, a long fight back. And uh, although he hadn't joined Orica Greenedge at that point... or whatever they were called at that point um the team really helped him with his recovery and and you know i suppose there were questions about whether he'd even make it to the the um the you know the world tour level and uh, well he did and that does speak to his resilience and i think probably is sort of just judging him by how he looks you know it's kind of baby-faced i mean it's hard to look at chavez even now and think he's 33 i mean he still looks about 23 uh, but uh, clearly a sort of an iron fist in a velvet glove um type of character and uh I'm yeah Daniel, say,
1: were... i'm glad you didn't say baby-faced or smiling assassin it's one of those sporting <laughs> monikers that i cannot stand <laughs>
3: You know, instinctively I knew you'd take against that. Who was the footballer who was the baby faced assassin? Would there
1: have been about seven thousand. <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: but yeah, he stayed at the Orica Green Edge team in its you know, it was the same team but had several different uh, titles. Stayed there for uh, what was it, eight seasons. And uh, well as we heard from uh Ch- Chavez um you know, found the first year with EF education a difficult transition, all new people. He even mentioned, you know, a new, new bike to adjust to. And uh, yeah, it wasn't wasn't the greatest year of his career last year. But uh, Daniel, I just think back to that 2016 Giro and you know there was sort of twenty-four hours where it felt like Chavez was going to win that Giro. I mean we all remember back to we all remember back to Steven Krausreich and him coming to grief against the yeah. ice wall. Chavez effectively... was the initial yeah, the yeah, beneficiary he, of that, until he, he got Nibali'd.
1: He lost that Giro, or well, well, Nibali took it from him in the last hour of the race, effectively on the penultimate stage. Um, yeah, um, Ian, just to turn it back slightly to to us, to use this as a as an excuse to talk about ourselves. Um, yet again, just that that point I made about riders getting attention from journalists from the press from the media is that a point of discussion ever that um you know if riders aren't doing as well as they were i don't know six months ago or two years ago or five years ago do you ever hear sort of carping among riders about that like oh they're only bloody interested they only want to talk to me when i'm winning have you ever heard that
2: um i mean it's definitely the case for a rider. you know one thing personally that i noticed you know i retired from the you know professional racing, there was a moment when you know, people want to do interviews for, Hey, why are you retiring? You know, what's next? And then everything kind of died off. And then I won unbound, you know, back to gravel. And then it was like, you know, I was kind of in the limelight again. And I actually felt really guilty because I knew the work that I was putting in, okay, I won the race, but you know, my, my friends, you know, people like Warbass and, and Dombrowski who were, you know, still living this professional lifestyle and putting in far more work than I were, you know, than I was, we're getting no recognition. And here I was, you know, on magazines, on websites, you know, here's my bike, here's, you know, you're on a hundred podcasts. And I was like, whoa, this is weird because I, I didn't, I didn't expect this. I wasn't looking for this. You know, I don't need more, you know, promotion or, you know, attention. Um, but those athletes, you know, who are kind of in that point of their career weren't getting that. And that was, that was a strange moment for me. Um, at the same time, you know, I still think there's this kind of mindset in the world tour when, you know, you have a team built around you, you know, and, and as long as you're kind of doing your job, you're, you feel, you know, comfortable within your team. And so I think there's a lot of athletes who, you know, actually don't really mind not speaking to the media. You know, famously, I was, you know, teammates with Pete Kenna, who, you know, didn't want famously, to do interviews at all, you know. podcast, <laughs> now got his own podcast.
1: He um, and he's also a colleague of mine on ITV. Um, Ian, does it ever occur to you guys as riders that the journalists simply don't want to bother you? Because that is true um for a lot of journalists at a lot of different moments before and after races
2: um i guess it never really dawned on me i mean i never had a you know i never had a problem speaking to to journalists um you know, obviously, there are certain times when you know a certain question is going to be asked of you, and that you don't really want to address. Um, you know, especially if it's something that's maybe controversial or something that you don't really fully have an opinion on. Um, so you can kind of skirt skirt around that, or you know, maybe pretend like you're busy. But for the most part, I think you know, writers aren't too, and more so now than ever, it's really become part of your job is, is speaking to the media and having this relationship with, you know, with journalists and with the media, because it is becoming an ever more important part of being a professional writer. And I think a large part of that is due to maybe writers kind of doing this privateer, you know, you know, career where they need that publicity. And then all of a sudden journalists say, Hey, well, I, if I can't get an interview with this world tour writer, I can go speak to this, you know, gravel rider or mountain biker and they're willing to give me an hour and a half or two hours versus you know someone like Sagan who might give you you know two minutes and uh yeah I think it's, I think from from brands and from teams it's becoming more important that athletes have you know a good relationship with media Ian, I think you've got to go haven't you I do thank you so much guys and I'll uh, look thank forward to listening a, it's to what you treat, discuss
1: only for your headgear <laughs> um, yeah, the whole thing has been a treat and best of luck in the cape epic report back um i know you're making some kind of podcast i know is is that a cycling podcast affiliated podcast it's probably not is it
3: i think it might be a sort of a parallel okay. podcast of some description okay. you know but uh both mitch and ian hopefully will kind of you know they'll, they'll ride parallel to us and then you know come into our lane a bit later on in the season and then drift back out into into their own lane at, at some point but uh Well, for Valentine's Day, Ian's going to love us and leave us.
2: Yes, well, yes, I've got another affair to attend. (laughs) All right, thank you, guys. Well, Lionel, that's just about it for
1: us as well, isn't it? Do we have any other business to discuss? Um,
3: I was going to just raise the point that uh, it it struck me as quite surprising until I heard it that uh, Esteban Chavez had never been the Colombian road race champion before. Uh, I, I, I mean, I perhaps don't have a pull-down uh, menu of the recent Colombian road race champions easily to hand in my mind, but uh, it did surprise me a little bit of that, and it does feel a bit like you know uh, well su- su- as i say surprising that he's 33 and uh, well it could be a big year for him with ef education i mean they've started like a train haven't they uh, but they will presumably start at some point feeling quite confident about uh, the bigger objectives to come i mean you don't quite know what will what they'll do for the tour de france but they have richard carapaz this year and uh, you know they've got a lot of people who could potentially support carapaz or act as a foil for carapaz mm. in the tour de france rigoberto uran is still around and from what hugh i gather carthy. going very well in training hugh carthy uh, nielsen paulus of course and uh chavez i mean whether they pick them all for the tour de france i don't know but uh they could certainly be a factor that's for sure
1: Yeah, it's a a team with a very good roster this year and Jonathan Vortis has been speaking recently about how the team has been able to up the ante slightly in terms of the money that's being spent on sports science and um, all things that they had to sacrifice a little bit during the COVID pandemic because their sponsor, EF, relies heavily on travel, effectively, and their revenue was severely hit by the COVID pandemic. But just um final point on Chavez as well, Lionel. He is obviously firmly in the camp. We discussed it at the start of the podcast that he believes that a lot of the young stars that are burning bright, very bright at the moment they might have shorter careers than we have seen in previous generations. I'm a bit of a skeptic about this. Um, You know, I, I made the point early in the podcast about Rowan Dennis, Peter Sagan and Thibaut Pino. They're three guys who have done very well out of cycling. They've been among the most successful riders of their generation. They've made enough money to retire in their early 30s. I think that's one thing that definitely keeps a lot of riders in the sport well into their 30s. And physiologically, as we've seen with the likes of Valverde, Rebellin, there are lots of other examples, um, there are even more ways and means now with the tools available um, to, to sort of solve the age puzzle and, and to be competitive with those younger riders, so I don't necessarily think that we're going to see a big wave of retirements of riders, of good riders in their late 20s
3: no i think like ever it will be a case of you know horses for courses um you know some riders will reach 10 years in the pro peloton and think that that's enough and others will want to just go on and, and one more year one more year um but i do think it's an interesting trend uh, the number of young riders that are coming in i i suppose you know and it, it really caught my eye with the with the 18 year olds in the in the grenadiers Etoile de besage team i suppose the the biggest risk factor for the very young riders uh, with the, the you know the obligation of the the two year contract in a world tour team you know the rider that doesn't make it at 18 and 19 or 19 and 20 uh, suddenly scratching around for a contract at 20 yes it gives them time to you know take a step back and then then come again um but you, you know it's uh, there could be riders who find that you know they're they're sort of out of the sport you know very young uh, funnily enough it makes me think of another rider at ef education uh, james Shaw, who turned pro with lotto Sudal very young i think he was 21 when he joined them and he had to step back he rode three years for um well a couple of years british domestic teams and then found his way back in with ef education uh, last season so it can be done um but yeah it's a. Uh, uh, for a very young rider would have to have a degree of um, faith that the team is looking after their interests beyond just a sort of, you know, initial couple of year contract.
1: Yeah, and unfortunately there are a few there are some alternative paths into the pro scene now that pre- probably didn't exist, or they certainly didn't exist a few years ago. I mean, good example, good test case will be uh, Luca Vergalito, the Italian rider who is the latest winner of the Zwift Academy. He's a good example of someone who was, who was sort of past or overlooked by big teams or teams of any description, in fact, pro teams, and has found his way into the pro scene by the back door, really, at age 25. Don't think he started his season yet, um, but he's going to be riding. He's officially affiliated with the Alpecin de Koenig development team, but he's going to be riding some big races, um, if not, world, well, he won't be riding World Tour races, but he'll be riding some decent races with them. Lionel, I think that's about it, isn't it?
3: It is. Just one uh, very quick mention, my friends of the podcast series La Marseillaise, which uh, tells the story of my weekend in Marseille with Francois Tomaseau and Simon Gill was there as well. That is on the friends of the podcast feed now it's uh, turned out to be a sort of five-part mini-series really we discuss all manner of things the history of the race marseille's uh, well a complex relationship with the rest of france and with the tour de france uh pastis and bouillabaisse uh dan martin pops up as well talking about his formative years racing for vc La Pomme, which is the big marseille uh, amateur slash semi-pro Team, uh, what else? Well, we went to the velodrome, uh, not the indoor cycling velodrome, but the football stadium, Daniel. And uh, we All watched right, some right. baby-faced assassins and some <laughs> some false nines. And your old mate Alexis Sanchez was playing for Marseille, former Arsenal player. So even even you would have uh, enjoyed that, I think. You
1: Arsenal players, Matteo uh, Guidugli, uh, Nuno Tavares. Anyway, enough football, Lionel. We'll be back next week. Until then, happy Valentine's Day to everyone.
0: The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb and Lionel Burney.